This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 15. People are a company's most valuable asset when it comes to dealing with change. I've been asked throughout my career, how do you train employees to be adaptable? And I'm like, that's the wrong question. If you understood the psychology of people, understand how wrong that is. The competitive niche of humans as a species is our ability to adapt to changing environments. We are born with this amazing innate capability to learn. You don't teach kids how to learn. You create an environment that unlocks that amazing learning ability. And that's what employee experience is really about. How is technology shifting employee expectations? How will employee experience management impact the future of work? Hi, I'm your host, J.P. Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast. The only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Hunt. Dr. Hunt is the Chief Expert Work and Technology at SAP's North American Innovation Office. He's also part of their Executive Advisor team. Dr. Hunt's work focuses on using technology to increase workforce agility and performance through improving employee experience, development, engagement, inclusion, and well-being. He also studies how technological and demographic shifts are changing the nature of work, organizations, and careers. An internationally recognized thought leader in the field of HR technology, he has worked with over a thousand organizations spanning almost every industry. In 2019, he was awarded the honor of fellow in the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology. Dr. Hunt is also a well-respected keynote speaker and author of several books about workforce management, including his most recent book, Talent Tectonics, Navigating Global Workforce Shifts, Building Resilient Organizations, and Reimagining the Employee Experience. This is a tremendous book. I highly recommend you read this. One of the best I've read in 2022. During our conversation today, Steve and I discuss how demographic shifts and technologies impact the future of work, why employee experience is much more than just engagement or retention, why you need to assess your employee experience and how to do it, and why people are a company's best asset when it comes to adapting to change and much more. Steve, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have the conversation. Excited to have you on and to talk about your new book, Talent Tectonics. My understanding is that you wrote Talent Tectonics to help organizations build workforces for a future that is very different from the past. Tell us what you meant by that statement. The book came out of my work, right, which is what I do for a living is work with companies to use technology to create more effective work environments. But a lot of that has to focus in on how the work environments we need to create are being changed by technology. You know, I'm an industrial organizational psychologist, but I work for a technology company supporting thousands of companies around the world. So that kind of gives me an interesting perspective, I think, that most people don't necessarily get because I work with so many different companies in so many different industries and different areas. And one of the things that has come out of this is a lot of these conversations I've been having with customers that are sort of struggling with different changes. And when I, what prompted me to write this book was trying to make sense of all these different conversations and saying, well, what is the underlying thing that's going on? 
And so if you look at the, how his work is changing very different from the past, there are two major changes that are happening that are affecting. And these are what I call talent tectonic changes. The concept of talent tectonics is like, you know, the tectonic plates, we can't see them, but they're moving and we experience the results of their movement either violently through earthquakes or slowly through mountain ranges. You can apply the same idea of to work, that work is fundamentally being changed. And, and currently the two big things that are changing work are one, we're having massive changes in our labor market because we're living longer and having fewer children. And to the point where there are more people aging out of a lot of labor markets and entering them around the world. And this is the particularly in sort of more developed economies. And this has never happened before, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is significantly changing chronic labor shortages. Uh, it's changing the nature of how long people work for. It's having all kinds of plans because the labor market itself is fundamentally changing the actual population. And the other even bigger change is the accelerating rate of change and the change of work, the nature of work itself is changing, which is largely due to technology. And so I'll take a pause and ask another question. I'll get more into this because you put it in the historical context. But work has really changed from we used to make things and now a lot of work is about exceeding expectations, being like highly creative. The fundamental reason that we work, the purpose of work itself, is fundamentally changing due to technology. And that's what I mean by very different from the past. It's a world where the labor markets are much scarcer, much smaller, much different. And the nature of what we're hiring people to do is very, very different from what we did in the past. We're, we used to hire people, kind of oversimplifying, you know, show up, do what you're told and get paid. And now we're asking people to be fully present, highly engaged, creative and be rewarded and have meaning. That's different. That's a significant change in the nature of work. It really is different. And I love the tectonic analogy because it really is sort of happening in the background. At the same time, we're, we're all involved in it. We're living the, the digitizing of our workforce. We're kind of seeing the demographics change, but it's really hard to understand when you're, when you're in the workforce, right? The pandemic, I think, made it a little bit more visible, right? With sort of certain groups leaving the workforce, some groups that can work from home. What you're describing are things that have been happening for decades and now are just starting to really impact the workforce. Is that right? Yeah, it is. And when I talk about talent tectonics, it's not like, oh, we're working hybrid and remote more. That was already starting to happen. What happened with the pandemic is it just accelerated the use of remote work. It was That was a trend that was already happening. But when I look at that change, when I talk about talent tectonic force, I think it's really useful. This is one of the things the book gets into is look at the historical context, how much work does change over time. So when I talk about talent tectonics and their impact, to give you an illustration, if you look at the 20th century, the two big talent tectonic forces that radically change work were workers' rights movement, which, you know, people think, oh, we've always had paid vacation and occupational health and safety laws. No, we haven't. If you looked at anyone, I was like, say, anyone who worked on Anyone who tells you that work was better 100 years ago did not work 100 years ago. Work was physically brutal. I mean, it literally killed people. Companies at the beginning of the 20th century would factor in the number of people likely to be killed or maimed on the job into their workforce planning. You know, oh, we need 100 people for this month. We better hire 110 because 10% were likely to be killed. And it wasn't until the workers' rights movement in the 20th century that fundamental, fundamentally changed the sense of the obligation of employers to employees and led to things like occupational health and safety laws, 
you know, I had concepts of paid vacation. And this was not an easy transition. Fundamentally changed society. As a matter of fact, there were revolutions. Entire countries came down as a result of that movement. Governments were replaced and it's still playing out. That's what I mean by tectonic change. The other big tectonic change in the 20th century was the education and entry of women into the professional workforce. You know, or I think I want to be really clear, women have always been working. They just weren't getting paid for it. And at the beginning of the 20th century, fewer than 10% of employees in professional jobs in the United States were women. But what happened was our society changed about the education of women and then women entered the professional workforce. And now it's completely altered the nature of work. And I would say in a very positive way, it's my personal view. That's a massive change, not just to work, but to societies. And the two things that are playing out now, one, as they say, is we're living longer and having fewer children. And people, are, people know this, but they don't realize how much. The average life expectancy in the United States over the last 100 years or so has increased by about 35 years. I mean, 35 years, that's not a little bit longer. And at the same time, the birth rates in the United States have gone down by about two thirds. If you were a woman born in 1900, you would have been expected to give birth to about 6.1 children statistically. And now I think it's like 1.8 or something. And so that's completely changing the population of our society, the makeup of it, which is in turn changing the labor market. So that's what I mean by talent tectonic forces. And we'll get more, I can talk more about how much those are changing. I really want to talk a little more about digitalization because the demographic one is the fundamental source of a lot of the chronic labor shortages we're seeing. Right mm-hmm. But the digitalization one is even more fascinating. Let's talk more about digitalization and how that's impacting the workforce and just the trends you're seeing there. Yeah. So the demographic one is making companies have to be a lot better at sourcing talent. And also the issue is, I was saying the demographics, it's not that we don't have enough people, it's that we're not fully utilizing all the people we have. So how do we redesign jobs so that everyone can participate? And actually, this has been one of the benefits of like the move to hybrid work is allowing more people to work. I recently saw a statistic, employment of people with disabilities in the United States is the highest it has ever been. And that's largely attributed to removing the requirement that you commute every day as a job requirement. So that would be an example of how the demographic shifts. But the digitalization one is fascinating. Most people are aware of the breakdown of work into agricultural areas, and there was the industrial manufacturing age, and now we're in the knowledge and service age. And that's kind of how economists look at it based on the sectors of the economy people are working on. But if you look at the change in work from a psychology perspective, the very purpose of why we work has changed. You know, the reason for working. 200 years ago, the main reason people worked was to grow and distribute food so we didn't die. I kind of joke, talk about meaningful work. (laughs) Then you had the Industrial Revolution. And what happened there is it made us much more effective at growing and distributing food. So a lot of people shifted from growing food to keep us alive to making things to make us comfortable. Cars, you know, clothes, things like that. Now with digitalization, the move to automation, the bulk of jobs now are what are called service or knowledge jobs. And what is the purpose of a service job? It's to exceed someone's expectations. It's to make people feel good about whatever it is you're providing to them, whether that's a service or a product. Even like, I'll I'll take the auto manufacturing industry. One of the customers I work with makes cars. And they say, well, we don't think of ourselves as a car manufacturer. We're a transportation service provider, which sounds kind of like wonky consulting. But Mm -hmm. it's actually true because they said, look, if all people were doing was buying the ability to get from point A to point B, 
they wouldn't spend the money on our cars. We have to give them this delightful experience, ego enhancing, whatever. Well, if you want, if you're trying to like make people feel good about what you're doing for them, you have to be empathetic. You have to be creative. At the same time, technology is changing the way we deliver things. It's changing consumer preferences. It's changing supply chains. So it's changing how we need to deliver these adapt- adaptable. So now what we need employees to do is we need employees to be caring, collaborative, creative. And the thing is, you can't do those things if you feel exhausted, burned out, or miserable. It's Psychologically, there's a concept called emotional labor, which you're probably familiar with, which is the physical and mental toll of trying to act externally differently from how you feel internally. And it's so when you look at the way work is changing here, most people talk about employee experience and they think about, oh, it's about engagement and retention. Yeah, that's more important than it used to be because of the demographic changes. If people, especially skilled employees, have a crappy job, they won't stick around. They have three clicks on Google from another job. Right. But the far more profound change is employees literally can't do what companies want them to do if they're having a miserable experience at work. You can't be creative, caring, and collaborative to feel exhausted or exploited. And even like, you know, I, I present on this. Once I was presenting, and I always used to use an example of like, look, you can shovel coal and feel like crap. You can't provide caring customer service and feel like crap. It's not sustainable. And one of the customers came up to me afterwards and said, well, actually, you know, I work for a mining company and you can't shovel coal anymore and feel like crap. That used to be true, but now it's highly sophisticated machinery. And in fact, if people are exhausted or born out, they're a safety risk. And even in Coal mining jobs, employee experience is absolutely critical. And it's not just about retention. It's about people can't do what we want to do if we don't provide them a more effective experience at work. Wow. I think, you know, what you said there is changing my perspective a little bit on how we think about the employee experience. I mean, this idea of exceeding expectations. And if we're really are in the business of doing that, and I think a lot of companies are, then we've got to, I'm going to guess, exceed expectations for our employees as well and really help them be self-actualized and be able to do this work that's creative and give their best and feel like there's a purpose and meaning behind what they're doing. And that seems like that's the premise of the book and a lot of what you focus on, how we can start to do that and bring that into workforces. Yeah. What the book talks about is it talks about these talent tectonic forces, but then um, I dive into discussion of how we need to respond given the changing nature of work, that we're, we're in a much more competitive labor market. We need to rethink jobs to be more inclusive we need to make sure we're engaging people. But then when we have them in the jobs, we have to give them this positive experience. And to do that requires a real good understanding of two things. One, technology, how we can use technology to rethink the nature of work. And people don't realize how much technology permeates our very conception of what work is. I mean, remote work is a really good example. There's nothing natural about going to an office every day. The only reason people thought that was the natural way to work was because it was familiar. And the reason why it was familiar was because it was based on really old technology. The first office building, the first building that was just built, just so people could commute to it every day and sit in meeting rooms, is arguably the British Admiralty Building in Greenwich, England. It was built in the 18th century. Before that, where people worked either like factories where they made things or palaces or stuff like that, like Versailles where they lived. This is the first time. They just built a building solely so people could commute to it. And they did it because the British Navy was becoming a very large organization and they needed a better way to communicate and collaborate. So taking into account 
the communication technology that was available in the 18th century, they invented the office building, which is a form of communication technology. And just like any communication technology, Zoom, email, whatever, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. And there are definitely downsides to office buildings, like managing people better. You know, oh, that person is late. They must be really committed. Or maybe that person leaves early. They don't care about their job. Or maybe they have to pick up their kids from childcare, right? <laughs> you know, right. There's definitely dark sides to office buildings, but there's also really positive. Person meeting is absolutely really powerful. But what happened is we had come to totally over rely on that technology. To the point that we even forgot it was a form of technology. Then what happened with the pandemic is it made us realize technology had advanced such that we didn't have to sit together to work together. And what we learned from Shift was that technology was readily available. I mean, heck, I've been working remotely for like 20 years. But why weren't companies using it? Because the mindset of leaders was based on this very outdated concept of work. And so a lot of what the book gets into is how do we need to use technologies like hybrid work technologies, virtual technologies, machine learning technologies, all these different technologies. How do we need to use them to rethink work so that we can be more inclusive in how we design and staff organizations, but also more supportive in the experiences that we create for people? But the, so that, that's a big key is really understanding what technology enables us to do in terms of rethinking work. And I think that's where my Working in a technology company and having a very deep background in technology kind of gives me it's more more understanding of what, for example, what AI can and cannot do. There's also a lot of myths about technology. But the other part that's critical, and JP will appeal to you, is we need to use technology to reimagine work and the employee experience, taking into account the one thing about work that isn't changing, which is the psychology of people. Mm. People don't evolve that fast. If you want to hear me go off on a soapbox, ask me about generational differences. Oh, I'm right there with you. <laughs> so. The way I put it is, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of research that shows they say people don't evolve that fast. The fundamental things that make us happy, engaged, learn, that's rooted in core human psychology that really hasn't changed in centuries. It, you might ever wonder why are Shakespeare plays still relevant now when they're written 500 years ago? Because they talk about fundamental psychological truths, you know, and that's why we learn from them. There are changes in attitudes from one generation to the next, but there are surface things. The way I describe it is, well, first of all, the attitude you have towards work is heavily influenced by your life stage, whether you have kids or not. It's also influenced by the labor market. But the way I put it is, you know, my kids listen to totally different music than I do, but we both listen to music and we both like to dance, right? You know, the fundamental purpose hasn't changed. I will close on my little soapbox here, though, too. You don't need a PhD in psychology to know that Grouping people based on demographic characteristics, sticking labels on them and making generalizations is bad. Stop it. We just need to stop the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. I think it's short-sighted. And I know we're always looking for shortcuts and we want to put people in the categories that makes things feel cleaner. When people say, oh, you know, Gen Z or millennials really care about and want a meaningful career. And I'm like, what, a baby boomer or a Gen X doesn't? Of course they do. It's silly. Right. So I, I'm glad you brought that up. I know it's a topic that some people get very passionate about and very upset and have different points of view, but the research does not bear out that there are generation differences. There are differences. I will say you know, there are differences for sure that you need to attune to, but don't assign them to based on the year people were born. Actually, there's interesting generational research that shows that 
you can identify with different generational stereotypes regardless of your age. Um, but it's just like to say it's it's not it's not good to do. Whenever whenever you hear somebody say something about Generation X is this or millennials or that, replace it with like the word Asian or Hispanic and listen to what it sounds like. Hmm. It, doesn't, it doesn't sound tough, good. It's um, a tough challenge. Yeah, you know, I think that's part of us being aware. Now, at the same time, I will say there are differences associated with the labor market and the technology in particular where you grew up. So I think technology is, we tend to be more comfortable, have more expectations with the technology that we're familiar with, just sort of like my office building thing, mm-hmm. example. But the same thing is true with like digital technologies and mobile-enabled technologies. Asking somebody, a digital native, as they call them, somebody who has had everything on their smartphone since they've come into awareness of themselves, to walk into an organization that doesn't have things mobile enabled would be like asking somebody from our generation to go into an office building and say, yeah, indoor plumbing. No, we haven't implemented that technology. We're getting around, do it. You know, it's your expectations around certain things are absolutely influenced by what you grew up with, your life experiences growing up. But the fundamental psychology of people, what makes people happy, what makes people engaged, what makes people feel good about themselves, that does not change based on generations. Well, it's a great perspective for us to continue to think about, you know, people do not change as much as other factors, right, around us, right, the context, the culture, the technology. But let's talk about employee experience. It's interesting because it is a buzzword, you know, Steve. And HR, I think over the past few years, really has talked a lot about employee experience. But I'm curious to know what you think HR is getting right about the concept and what they're getting wrong about the concept. I think the biggest thing getting wrong about it is thinking of it too narrowly, thinking of it as engagement, retention, and turnover. And I think that's actually going into more broadly what I think HR is thinking too narrowly in general about the purpose of HR. The purpose of HR is not to have engaged, skilled employees who don't quit. Companies don't hire people and pay people to be engaged, employed, and not. They hire and pay people to deliver business results. Business results are not measured in HR systems for satisfaction, sales, productivity. So I think in general, HR, you need to think of employee experience in terms of the impact it has on business results. And that's also critical, too, because employee experience management, it's not about putting employee needs above the needs of the company, because the most effective employee experiences come from working for successful companies. Very rarely do you associate employee experiences from working for failing organizations. So it's about how do we balance what companies need to be successful with what companies want to feel engaged and valued and appreciated. And historically, in HR, and this is in my own history of life, I remember it used to be companies that HR would sit down, okay, we need a process to like train people or pay people or whatever. And they look at it from the company perspective. I mean, job design is a really good example. You know, What jobs do we need to create and fill in order to achieve our company's business objectives? And it was very focused on what the company needed at the minimum cost. Well, employees don't join companies to contribute to the company's top line growth. Employees join companies to contribute to their own careers and lives. And I don't just mean like long-term career development. Also like, you know, can I spend time with my kids to see them play sports, right? There's lots of reasons when we're looking, we're looking for a job, what we want out of that job. And employee experience is about how do we elevate those? Because historically, companies would solve an HR problem with a job design, staffing, comp. This is what the company needs. And then they would, or if you remember, JP, the, the withums, what's in it for me? At the mm-hmm. end of this workshop, you know, of three days to be what the company needs, you go, 
okay, now let's try to come up with some reason why in the world an employee would ever want to do this. And if we couldn't get them to do it, we just attach their paycheck to it and force them to do it. That, what employee experience management is about is it's about taking that with them thing and moving it to the very front of the whole process. Companies can't get what they need if employees don't get the experiences they want, but employees can't get the experiences they want if companies don't get what they need. It's balancing those two. What you're really talking about and advocating for is designing really the employee experience like you would for a customer. Yeah. Starting from that point of view of what is, how is this going to impact the employee? How is this impacting their career, their development, their growth, their personal development, right? Just in general satisfaction and engagement with the company. But how do you design systems, processes, policies, frameworks that do that? Yeah. And keeping in mind too, like that customer is a good example, that companies provide good customer experience because they want customers to spend money with the company. You know, but if you go too far on just trying to focus on the money, you'll provide a lousy customer experience. So it's really how to balance that, that, that connection. There are also, though, I think, places where companies historically haven't looked at things from an employee perspective, and they're not aware of how much technology can improve employee experience. And there are cases where you really are doing things purely to provide a better employee experience because what employees expect changes and what they expect changes largely based on technology. And that's kind of where that point about generational differences in technology. A great example of this is like staffing. I'll, go, I'll give a couple examples. I'll do staffing. I'll do one for job design. For staffing, one of the largest frustrations in applicant reactions for years is applicants say, I never hear anything back. I apply for a job and I don't hear anything back. And you have to look at what applying for a job is from an employee perspective. It's like you're deciding, do I want to spend the majority of waking hours of my life in this organization. It's a huge life decision. Where on the company side, they're more like, um, wow, you're one of thousands of applicants and we'll get back to you whenever. And it's just an administrative sorting process. But on the employee side, it's a life-changing experience. So it's like, well, how can we reconcile these two sort of realities? And that's where technology has a big impact. Like things like chatbot technology. We work with a customer that has used chatbot technology to, it used to be for an employee would apply for a job. If they were qualified for the job, it would take like two weeks just to get back to the employee and say, hey, you're qualified. Let's schedule an interview. They took it down to two minutes. Matter of fact, they could have done it faster, but they felt it would be rude if the employee got the reaction immediately. And then they, and they respond with a chat, with a text instead of like a form, right? You know, it comes back and says, hey, you look like you're a great fit. Let's find a time to talk. That's an example where chatbot technology, the use of technology enables you to radically change the employee experience. But also it's giving the employee experience that's on par with the kind of experience those employees would get using consumer technology, as you were sharing earlier. So that's, a, that's an example of, you know, how our understanding of technology enable us to radically rethink something like staffing to give a better employee experience. But even more profound is actually job design itself. And probably one of the biggest things where you're seeing this play out, for example, is scheduling. And this is where, as HR professionals, we need to understand what technology is capable of because our understanding of technology both constrains and enables our imagination of what work can be. The scheduling, this, the example I'm going to provide is scheduling because it's a really good example. One of the main reasons employees 
shift jobs, scheduling jobs, is the shift itself. The shift is sort of incompatible with the rest of their life. You know, like they may start going to school and now they can't fit their school schedule with the shift. Or maybe they've got childcare issues or something like that. Historically, companies would set shifts based on what the company needed. We need people on the floor from these hours. So this is the shift you will work. Well, you're literally taking away somebody's control of their life when you're sort of like, these are the hours. And it's not how we manage our own lives. We don't live our lives in 40-hour blocks. And that's one of the great sources of frustration. Well, why do companies do it? Well, because they had to man the floor. They had things that had to get done. What has happened over the last five years is companies have developed self-scheduling shift technology. So an employee can go in and they can say, I want to take a couple hours off on Wednesday to go see my kid play sports and I'll work two hours on Saturday. And another employee has a different set. You end up with much more complicated shift schedules. Now, what makes it possible to do that is because the companies are using machine learning type of tools to balance these highly complicated individualized shifts. You wouldn't even consider something like that if all you were using was Excel spreadsheets. You'd say that's completely unsustainable. So this is an example where as HR professionals, we really need to understand the capabilities of technology, not that we'll necessarily always use it, but we need to understand what's possible so we can really reimagine how work can actually work for employees and more effectively balance that often in somewhat conflict between what employees want from a job and what companies want from employees. It's about balancing them. And that balance is really important. And I love the fact that you're talking about how technology can almost constrain our thinking. And I always recommend that to every HR leader, whether it's you yourself or your team, go out and have talks with different new emerging technology and companies. They're bringing something new to the table. We all get emails every day from small startup tech companies, especially in the HR space. They're trying something new and different. And a lot of times we just say no. But being curious and looking out there and just having the conversation, it might open your eyes around, wow, I didn't even know this existed. And there's something that might be really useful to your company to improve that employee experience that you just hadn't thought of before. Yeah. And I think that's why it's important as HR professionals to do follow technology, talk to other people about technologies that are using. Even if, again, maybe, you know, your company may not have the resources, but just be familiar with what's out there. And also the thing about technology, what's great about it is things that are really expensive suddenly become very cheap over time. It's true. You know, what was the total amazing cutting edge innovation like seven years ago now is sort of like the standard expectation. I think what companies struggle is when they don't pay attention to technology and you start falling out of date. And increasingly going back to the demographic issue is if you don't provide employees with good experiences, you're not going to be able to keep them. You know, and that's what we saw the quote, great resignation, which as you know, was not more a great reshuffling. Um, I mean, there were certain industries like healthcare where we did see a lot of people leaving the labor force, but like in the services jobs, the way I like to think of it, I don't know if this is literally true, is you basically have a lot of people working in really crappy services jobs, barely able to make their rent because they're not paid very much. And then suddenly they got like this two week reprieve to look around and go, this job sucks. And look, this company's paying $20 an hour and signing bonuses and full healthcare benefits. I think I'll go over there. And so what happened now is I think our labor force, which I, which I think is a wonderful thing, realized they are, as I said earlier, like two clicks on Google to a better job. So as HR professionals, 
we really need to be constantly pushing ourselves to understand what is possible with technology evolving and pushing our company to do what makes sense. You can't improve what you do not measure. So where should HR leaders start when assessing the organization's current employee experience? So this is really a good question. One of the things is listen to people. That's the essence of understanding employee experience is listening. And so one thing that we really started doing during the pandemic, which sadly is fading away because of listening fatigue, is companies really did start listening to people. I remember talking to some HR leaders about how their CEO was like, just having regular calls just to listen to employees. And they're like, why didn't they always do that? But we did have that and it showed. It showed that people, which I want to come back to in a second because we have one more thing about employee experience I want to talk about which affects people's ability to deal with change. But, but listening is a big part of this, is really listening to people. And the challenge is that, one, just literally listening is not scalable. But also, it's more exhausting for leaders, and it's a little bit artificial. One of our customers shared this insight with me. It was really fascinating. She said, it's impossible for a senior leader to truly understand the experiences employees are having in their company without using technology. And her point was, she said, first of all, they're limited in how many people they can listen to. So a company that has more than 300 people, there's no way you can listen to everyone. Also, though, you even if you could, Leaders live in a bubble. They don't experience the same thing employees experience and employees aren't necessarily going to voice what they experience. And I remember this was really illustrated to me. I was working with a colleague. I work for a very large company. SAP's got like 110,000 employees. And there was a colleague of mine who was a manager at another function and they were really having a lousy employee experience due to a technology the company was using internally. We're a big company. Like any company, we got our pluses and minuses and bureaucracy and stuff. And so he had a chance to talk to a leader high enough up who could have addressed and could have changed it. And I asked, did you talk to him about this problem? And he goes, no. This is the only time I've met this person. Like, this, he didn't literally say this, but I'll paraphrase. The only time I've met this person, like three levels above me, I don't want the only interaction he has to me is he, hearing me complain about something, you know? And so... As a leader, if you really want to understand employee experience, you've got to use technology. And the technology here is really evolving very quickly. I mean, obviously, there's things like pulse surveys, very targeted surveys. And the key thing about employee listening technology and this pulse survey technology, it's not the ability to ask questions. It's the ability to ask the right question at the right time to the right person in the moment, very targeted. And also, and this is actually where the technology gets really sophisticated, but people don't see it because it's below the covers, interpret that data and get it back to somebody who's close to the point of action, whether that's a manager or a more higher leader. But you've got to manage that data the right way with confidentiality and analysis. So a lot of what makes these unplayed listening technology really powerful isn't just the ability to ask questions, it's the ability to interpret that data. There's also technology, you know, I've seen companies use things where they can get a sense of employee experience by looking at attendance records and when people aren't showing up at work. There's technology, literally now stuff on using office space. How often are the in-office spaces? They can control for an anonymity. You can scan semantics of email texts. There's a zillion technologies out there that allow us to measure employee experience. But I think what's important as companies, as HR professionals, we need to really embrace that. And then remember, though, that the purpose of listening is to take action. 
So make sure you're analyzing that data and providing it back to people who can't take action. And if they're not taking action, look for ways to connect that data to, again, the reason we employ people, which is an employee experience. It's customer sales, it's productivity, it's profit, it's all those sorts of things. Look at ways to say, look, the fact that we're giving these people about employee experience isn't just affecting retention and turnover, it's affecting the very organization itself. Now I'll say that last part is the most exciting part, I think, of the future of HR is linking HR to non-HR data. It's also one of the hardest parts to do in our field, but the positive of the technology is there's a whole new class of technology called interoperable technology that's enabling us to do this. And that's what I think really forward-looking HR leaders, that's what they're looking at. They're looking at how can we get out of the HR silo? You know, we always said we want to be connected to the business. Well, then we need to connect ourselves to the systems the business uses. And it's not HR systems, it's business operation systems. Yeah, I think that link, the service profit chain link and actually being able to measure that on a real-time basis is where all progressive HR leaders are trying to get to. And it's challenging because you may not even have rear view data in terms of lagging indicators sometimes in organizations. And I think, yeah, to that point, as HR, I think there's a couple things, kind of focusing on the focus of this show, future of HR. If I look at HR on two things that we need to probably do different in the self-identity of our field. One is we need to be upfront of we don't measure the value of people. Because we can't, it's not in our systems. The value of people is not engaged and skilled. Yes, if they aren't engaged in enough skills, they can't add value, but their value is not in our systems. Which is also leads to some really horrific treatment of people. I've seen companies restructure based on job titles and salary and demographics with no knowledge of the actual contributions people make because HR and the business has never linked these things. So we really need to challenge ourselves and be upfront when talking to CEOs of organizations to say, wouldn't you like to know the return on investment we're getting from this massive workforce spend? Because we'd like to know. In the book, I show this story from a, a colleague who talked about doing a training and she went into the head of sales of a big company and just said, hey, we just, you know, we did like, we trained like a 2,000 people or whatever the last year. And the head of sales looked at her. This is Jenny Dearborn, by the way, this story. She's another book on data-driven HR. But she said, head of sales looks at her and says, so how many hours was this training? And she goes, it was like four hours or I, mean, I don't remember the exact numbers, like four hours a person. She, and he looks at her and says, so all you've told me is you've taken 8,000 hours of my sales force away from actually selling. I don't care about training. I care about the impact the training has. And if, the, if you can't show me the impact, I don't want to give you the time. You know, and as HR people, we should lean into that conversation. We should say, oh, well, fantastic. That's a great question. Let's figure out because we know training is important and we know sales is important, but we don't know is the link between them. So let's force ourselves to, to have those conversations, to, to be upfront with what we don't know and we wish we knew so that we create that change. And I say the positive thing is technology is getting us this data now. We have to be more sophisticated to, to learn how to use it. But I think that's a challenge to our profession. The other big challenges as HR professionals is throughout my career, people have said to me, you know, I don't care about HR. And I'm like, do you care about people doing what it is you want them to do? Because that's what HR is to me. You know, 
And I think a lot of in our profession, historically, it's more like, oh, we make sure people are well treated and we don't violate any rules or laws. I'm like, yeah, that's important. That's part of making people do, you know, people won't do what you want them to do if you don't pay them on time. But it's far more than that. And I think as, an, as a profession, it's almost like we've seeded that, you know, you would never go into like the CIO or the IT person is, let me tell you how you should manage security of employee data, you know, because that's their area of expertise. Yet as HR, we're, we struggle that challenge of, you know, leaders say, well, I know people. And it's like, we need to own the facts. Like, no, you may know them, but you don't know them the way we know them. And I think we need to own that expertise more. We do. And I think, you know, you think about finance, it doesn't walk in and apologize for the numbers or yeah. not have a methodology. There's a way you look at a P&L. We in HR, and I think we're getting there, but we have a long way to go, need to have our own methodology and not have an inferiority complex and say we're HR, but actually say, no, we understand how we recruit, how we retain, how we develop people, change management. We have methodologies and processes that are based on science and evidence and some art because culture and context really matters. But you need to listen to us. And part of that starts with making sure we've got the right leaders in the room to do that, which is partly why, frankly, I started this podcast because I want the next generation of HR leaders to have that business mindset and can really bring that toolkit that shifts not only how we're seen, but the impact we can have. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard thing because you don't want to come across as arrogant or anything like that. But in the reality that if you're a really good HR leader, you do know more about what, how to motivate people. You do know more about how to create better employee experiences. And the real challenge is we have to get better at articulating why this matters, which goes back to employee experience, which is making leaders realize because we go into this era of work where we have chronic shortages of skilled labor. That's not going to go away. And also where people, if they're not having these experiences, it's like, if you want a creative collaborative workforce, you've got to provide a better employee experience. So I kind of put it is companies cannot control the level of change that their employees are going to experience. And this isn't just at work. It's outside of work. The world is a psychologically more difficult place than it used to be. It's physically much easier, but it's psychologically much more difficult. We can't necessarily control all the change employees will experience, but we can absolutely influence how they experience that change. And if you look at employees, people are a company's most valuable asset when it comes to dealing with change. I've been asked throughout my career, how do you train employees to be adaptable? And I'm like, that's the wrong question. If you understood the psychology of people, understand how wrong that is. The competitive niche of humans as a species is our ability to adapt to changing environments. We are born with this amazing innate capability to learn. You don't teach kids how to learn. You create an environment that unlocks that amazing learning ability. And that's what employee experience is really about. And the book talks about the psychology of this, which it goes back to McClellan's needs. Which, you know, it's basically... If we understand why we're going through a change and how it, how it matters to us, you know, we understand the purpose and the reason for it. If we feel that we are connected to other people and we're supported and a sense of belonging and affiliation and community, and we feel a sense of confidence that we've got the tools and knowledge to overcome that change, people can deal with amazing levels of change. If you think about it in your own career, probably some of the most exciting times in your own career was times of massive change, new projects, new assignments. And it was difficult, but you felt you had those three things. I know why I'm doing it. I'm part of a team. We're getting it done and we can do it. And it's stressful, but it's good stress. It's that stress of accomplishing something in your life that's meaningful with other people. That's great. 
That's what managing employee experience is about. And I think that's where as HR professionals, we need to own the understanding of the expertise of what it means to create a highly engaged, effective workforce. We need to understand the technology that enables us to scale our expertise because not what's in our head doesn't matter. We have to find a way to get it out into the hands of managers. And we have to find a way to rethink work with more of an experience mindset, which requires us to understand technology. And then we need to, and probably this might be the most difficult, we need to articulate why it matters. And why it matters is, again, not employee engagement. It's things like, how does turnover affect the profitability of the organization? Stuff like that. Really powerful stuff, Steve. Let me ask you the final question. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I guess one in terms of how HR needs to approach its job differently and one in terms of, I think, what the purpose of HR is. The purpose of how HR does its job is say we need to go from, we need to move from managing processes to creating experiences. We need to think about what we do as our job is to create these positive experiences with us to attract, engage, and all those sorts of things. But from a larger function of why we exist in an organization, this is a tagline from Success Factors, the company I worked for, but I think it really does capture it. It's about business execution. How do we inspire people to do what it is the company needs them to do to be successful? And that goes back to employee experience. How do we, and so, as I said, when people ask me, I don't care about HR. I don't always say it, but I always think in my head, do you care about people doing what it is you want them to do? Because that's what the purpose of HR is. Steve, thank you very much. Creating employee experiences that drive business performance. Thank you so much for being on the Future of HR podcast. Yeah, absolutely. See, I should put the last caveat on that one. People won't do what you want them to do if they don't want to do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Steve for sharing his insights on how demographic shifts and technologies impacting the future of work and the employee experience. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes as 2023 is going to be even better than 2022. Speaking of 2022, we'll be back next week with our best of 2022 episodes, which will feature some of the most insightful moments and top guests of the year. It's an episode you don't want to miss. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.